Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of Stratford Talks, a podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratford.com. I'm Ben Sheen. As we approach the upcoming US presidential elections, it's worth noting that Stratford doesn't generally focus much on presidential elections. But we do focus on the international challenges and opportunities the next president will inherit. Today, we'll be joined by Stratford Vice President of Global Analysis, Riva Gujon, to discuss what challenges the next US president can expect to face. And after that, I sit down with Stratford Vice President of Tactical Analysis, Scott Stewart, to learn more about Stratford Threat Lens, a new global intelligence solution for organizations around the world. With the US presidential election one month away, we want to take a moment to look beyond the candidates' speeches and examine what foreign policy issues, opportunities and constraints the next US president will face, regardless of who wins the election. To help us explore this issue, we're joined today by Stratford Vice President of Global Analysis, Riva Gujon. Thanks for being here, Riva. Glad to be here, Ben. So before we start looking at the prospects for the next US presidency, I think it's worth noting that President Obama's term is not yet over, is it? No, and in fact, Ben, that lame duck session can actually be one of the more interesting periods uh, for a presidency, especially when it comes to foreign policy, where the president typically has a bit more domain to get through some last minute measures. And it's all about legacy shaping in those those final days of the presidency. And so, you know, we've seen, of course, President Obama trying to seal up um, a lot of different issues, you know, especially when it comes to trying to drive home the sustainability of the nuclear deal with Iran, trying to build enough momentum so that the next president will carry that policy forward. The same with Cuba. And with Russia, of course, things are a bit more difficult. And then on the flip side, you have countries who look at that lame duck session and in some sense try to take uh, some opportunity where they can basically carry out some some measures uh, without maybe as much consequence consequence compared to when a new president comes into power. So we certainly see that with countries like North Korea kind of taking advantage of the U.S. political distraction, really accelerating its nuclear program. And, you know, of course, that's going to be a major issue for the next president. On the other hand, you have pending negotiations, um, and it's all about momentum there. So, for example, Russia has been engaged in this very complex negotiation with the United States, trying to tie in Syria, trying to tie in Ukraine, trying to extract concessions from the West and the United States in particular when it comes to things like where is the line going to be drawn in the former Soviet sphere when it comes to NATO's push, um, when it comes to sanctions easing by the Europeans and the Americans. And It's therefore no coincidence that you see Russia basically putting forward two big kind of de-escalatory measures with a ceasefire in Ukraine by the rebels in the east and also trying to prove that it can mediate uh, some sort of ceasefire and power sharing agreement in Syria. All in the hopes that, you know, even if Russia can't get a grand bargain and they can't by the end of the year with the United States, at least they can try to get some momentum in that negotiation for the next president. I mean, it's a fascinating array of perspectives because you have an experienced president coming to the end of his term 
And he is effectively a known quantity. And, and yes, he's doing things now to try and uh, ensure his legacy. But now we're entering into the, this period of uncertainty. And we're already starting to see countries change their position uh, in anticipation of what might happen next. In terms of what we've seen from, from other nations, key partners or antagonists to the United States, who really has the most at stake in terms of the foreign policy sphere when it comes to this election, Reva? Well, there are a lot of countries that are watching this election uh, with a lot of concern. And I would say the country most directly impacted by the result of this election is Mexico, which already economically, we've seen the peso react to, you know, just how each of the candidates are doing in the polls, considering what's at stake for NAFTA, for trade relations between the United States and Mexico, for immigration policy, for security. And so, you know, Mexico being so tied to the United States is, of course, going to see a lot of ripple effects there and are watching this election very, very closely. But in the broader sense, you know, I think the big question on the minds of the Europeans and Central and Eastern Europe and when we look at the Asia-Pacific theater— a lot of countries that are worried about China's assertiveness in South China Sea, East China Sea, and everybody's looking at the United States and trying to assess what is the level of engagement and commitment that the United States is prepared to make under a new presidency, where those alliances really matter and are shaping the actions of other countries in those theaters. And that question mark is really on the minds of those countries in particular who have to decide, look, do we need to take matters into our own hands if we can't rely on the United States? And that's where you see alliances being formed, for example, within the Visegrad group in Eastern Europe, where you have Poland playing a very big role there and trying to band together countries um, who are all very interested in making sure that they are secure against Russia. And then when you look in, in the Far East, where you have Japan, South Korea trying to gauge to what extent is the U.S. going to be committed to their theater? I mean, you raised some really good points there. Uh, you look particularly at Europe and uh, the key role that the U.S. plays within NATO and actually providing that counterbalance. To, to what Russia is doing in the region. And then you look at the Middle East, the key role the U.S. is playing in Syria. But I'd actually I'd quite like to focus on Asia Pacific, because you mentioned that the U.S., through the projection of power from its Pacific fleet or economically, plays a massive role in the Asia Pacific region, but has been trying to adjust its position there. Japan is obviously watching with interest what will happen next. And China is in an ascendant position. Um, how do you think the dynamics will change in Asia Pacific specifically um, as the presidency goes on to its next form? Well, we have seen the United States trying to make this pivot to uh, the Asia Pacific theater for some time now, right? And it's been very difficult when particularly developments in the Middle East keep pulling the U.S.'s attention. But issues like North Korea are inevitably going to draw the U.S. harder and harder into this direction. And it's a multi-pronged policy where through trade relations, through security alliances, the U.S. is, is engaged in this region regardless of which president we see come to power in Washington. It's just a question of scale, right? We have a major trade agreement like the TPP still pending, no guarantee that this is even going to go through. Uh, Vietnam has already delayed ratification. Japan is saying that they're going to move ahead with it, but they fully expect the United States to follow through. And there have been reassurances made by the administration, but there still is absolutely no guarantee that the politics domestically aren't going to end up snagging the deal in the end. And so that has a lot of symbolic significance beyond the practical 
illegal trade importations. It's just a level of, of commitment overall that they're trying to gauge. You know, when we look at the Asia-Pacific theater, these are countries that don't operate in a zero-sum fashion where it's sign a trade deal with the United States or with China, you know, work militarily with the United States or China. The countries who are caught in the middle are always going to play different sides. They're always going to keep close economic linkages on, on both ends. And you're not going to see necessarily a shift from that. And you're still going to see heavy economic engagement by the United States in what is a fast-growing market in the world. Absolutely. And and you mentioned, interestingly, that countries are hedging their bets until they, they have more of a, a clearer idea of who's going to be in power. And you mentioned specifically Vietnam and, and waiting to make a decision on the Trans-Pacific Partnership before they move forward. Is this typical for an election period? Have we seen this sort of behavior before? Or is this something that's really specific to the position we're in now? Oh, no, this is entirely normal. You can't really shape your policy until you know who you're dealing with. And the two candidates have pretty distinct foreign policy preferences. And this is really the test, especially for us at Stratfor, I'd say, because, you know, through a geopolitical lens, we always talk about how there's sort of an invisible hand in geopolitics that drives uh, a policymakers' actions. And the president ultimately is going to be very constrained when they come into office, which is why even when you change parties or ideologies and personalities, oftentimes, you know, you don't see huge policy shifts because there is ultimately a U.S. strategic interest. Now, that said, there are certainly different ways to go about meeting those strategic imperatives. And tactically, things can differ. And I think that's one of the biggest consequences that we see in this U.S. election is that there's a very big difference in tactics and overall beliefs and where the U.S. should be focusing its attention. So I would say there are some very important consequences foreign policy-wise when we look at the personality in the White House this time. And you make the very good point that personalities are often less important than the position of the country and and actually, you know, the undergridding forces that, that are at work there. But there's also an issue of perception. And we've seen this in previous presidencies, how who sits in the White House does have an effect on how the country is perceived in, in the wider world, not, perhaps not so much at the diplomatic level, but certainly when you look at, at the everyday uh, people within the countries. Do you think that will be an issue, certainly for the next president, how to manage their perception internationally? Absolutely. I mean, it's an issue for every president. Um, I just came from Eastern Europe and I was only called the evil empire once, so I guess that's progress. But yeah, I mean, honestly, you do see a shift in perception. But in any case, the U.S. has a global presence. And in a lot of these countries that are on the front lines of many big confrontations or pending confrontations, certainly look to the United States as their security patron. And when we look at U.S. foreign policy and how it's evolved just even over the past decade, we've seen the United States trying to move past the Middle East in some ways where it's not so consumed by the issues in this region to where it can actually focus on other strategic issues that are emerging in the Asia-Pacific theater, in Europe and elsewhere, because we certainly know there are big issues elsewhere. But the threat of Islamic State is a big one, um, one that isn't going away. And that is where the United States needs alliances in order to manage its priorities. There's no way that the U.S. is going to be able to do it all by itself. And so as the U.S. has been trying to build up other regional forces to take on more of the burden, whether it's looking at the Turks 
in the Middle East, looking at the Japanese and the South Koreans in the Far East, um, looking at Poland and Europe um, and other countries along that Central Eastern European belt. You know, it's all about getting others to to share in the responsibility. But the trick there is that those countries are not going to have their interests always neatly aligned with those of the United States. They are also pursuing their own agenda. So they can agree strategically on an objective, but tactically, things can get really messy. And, and as you so well put, the U.S. is in an unenviable position in the sense that people look to the country for often guidance or security or, or support, be it financial or military. And yet when things don't go the way that each individual country would prefer, they often rail against the U.S. And we've seen this quite often in the Middle East, where the U.S. has been heavily involved, often more through necessity than an actual desire to, to, to get dragged into the, the mirrored conflicts there. How do you see the U.S. position in the Middle East, specifically the, the hotspots at the moment, such as Syria, Iraq, uh, Libya? How do you see that carrying forward? Well, the U.S. doesn't have full control over the situation, and it's not going to, regardless of who becomes president. And again, the reason why is because if the United States is not willing to go into an entire state-building enterprise, and put multiple divisions of troops on the battlefield again. And it's certainly understandable to see why the U.S. would refrain from doing that. It has to rely on the regional players who have a stake in these conflicts. And take Syria, which is, uh, you know, just sort of a microcosm for all the regional competitions we see in play. The U.S., it wants to stay very focused on the fight against Islamic State. That is the priority focus. It needs to rely on a number of different players to achieve those objectives. It needs to basically try to keep Russia out of the way. So maintain a dialogue with Russia, but you're not going to make huge strategic concessions to the Russians either just because they can play some kind of spoiler status on the battlefield. Take Turkey, which has a huge presence in this region. It has a lot of influence. We've been saying for a long time that we're going to see Turkey return to some of its former Ottoman uh, areas of influence and northern Syria and northern in Iraq are really going to be the focus there. So Turkey is not just in the fight against Islamic State. They're very much focused on Kurdish containment, and they want to draw lines around the United States on the U.S. not being able to work with Kurdish forces on the ground at the same time. The U.S. has to work with Kurdish forces on the ground because they are reliable fighters on on the battlefield itself. So there is this constant balancing act of doing just enough to keep the Turks in a cooperative stance, but not being able to control Turkey's actions, right, when it wants to focus on its Kurdish agenda. Um, at the same time, still having the flexibility to work with other rebel proxies that may upset the regional players that you have to work with. And so... That's tough. This is a high-maintenance policy, and it takes a very deep understanding of every player's motives. And that's just a situation that the U.S. finds itself in, and it's not going to be one that's going to be able to escape. So it's slow progress against Islamic State, inevitably because it has to work with so many players and oftentimes competing interests. And that's just one thing that any new president will have to deal with. So moving on the security sphere slightly, uh, Reva, one last question I had for you was, what about um, economics? How do you see the macroeconomic situation playing out for the future? Well, you know, it's interesting. Of course, the economic recovery has been a huge subject of the campaign so far, and there's a lot of discussion about how this is the weakest economic recovery to date for the United States. And of course, there's a lot of politicization that goes with that. But 
we know that there are cycles to economic activity. And oftentimes, it's all about where your presidency falls in that cycle. When we look at where we are now moving forward and the reasons why recovery is maybe not as strong as people hope for it to be, why it's so hard to get to higher growth, not just in the United States, but in the rest of the developed world, um, you see the same issue where the major central banks are all trying to figure out how do they stimulate growth? How do they get off of this huge dependency on monetary easing to produce growth. And it's not easy because there are some very deep structural issues that are leading us into this low growth era. And as economies evolve and debt builds up, you're going to see those issues come into play and it's going to become harder and harder to achieve growth targets. And so I think it's important for us to really understand what are those underlying structural issues and which countries are are very focused on trying to tackle them. And so in the United States, there's more likely that we see the next president overseeing another economic recession. And when we see such low interest rates at this point, it kind of dulls the tools you have to manage another economic downturn. And of course, um, as we see another U.S. downturn, that, of course, is going to unleash a lot of economic pain in these areas. Reva, thank you so much for taking the time to talk through this incredibly complex and intricate world that the next U.S. president will have no choice but to inhabit. Reva, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, it it definitely is a very complex world and a lot of sources of volatility, but all the more reason why we need to understand the drivers for those stresses in the rest of the world. And that's something we'll be doing in our upcoming forecasts. Very much so. And for more of this high-level geopolitical analysis, please continue to read stratfor.com. And here with me now is Scott Stewart, our Vice President of Tactical Analysis. And Scott will be talking with me about an exciting new product that we launched in September that is Stratfor ThreatLens. Scott, good to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. So what can you tell us about ThreatLens? Well, I think uh, what, what, what excites me about this is, you know, this is a topic or, or a, a series of topics that we've been covering at Stratfor now, really since Stratfor uh, was founded 20 years ago. And certainly during, uh, you know, my 12 years at the company. Uh, But one of the things that that I'm enjoying about it is the fact that it allows us to amplify our our coverage of these areas and and specifically trying to place them in context, you know, for security managers of, of corporations and NGOs. And that's a really good point, because Stratfor has always had a close focus on security and terrorism, those particular aspects, and they are popular on the site. But through the broader picture of geopolitics, we don't often have the chance to focus on those as much as we would like to. And with ThreatLens, it's a unique opportunity to do something that's different and a lot more laser focused than what we do on our, our regular Stratfor.com. It really does allow us to, to drill down more. Um, one of the things that I also like about the not, not just the, the information and the analysis, but the tool that ThreatLens is and that the developers have put together for us is that it allows users to kind of customize the security and, and terrorism issues that they're concerned about and the regions that they're concerned about uh, in, in their feed. Uh, so if it's somebody that's you know, concerned about crime in Latin America, they can receive you know, either push uh, messages to their phone or their computer, you know, email type messages that way. Um, or they you know, obviously can use it as, as research as well. But it, it allows them to really get what they're interested in 
um, and, and even you know narrow further uh, the flow of information that's coming from us. And that's obviously really important these days, being able to tailor that experience to, to what you want to get out of it. What other new features uh, will ThreatLens have that we haven't really been able to do before? Well, one of the things that we've added uh, is a risk matrix, and that comes over our, our dashboard uh, on, on ThreatLens. Basically, everything uh, revolves around this map when you first log on. And uh, we have a risk matrix that uh, overlays that map that kind of allows you to toggle on and see how we assess the set of countries we're looking at uh, really in, in four different areas uh, as far as terrorism insurgency threat, the criminal threat, uh, industrial espionage threat, and then business continuity. Another thing that's pretty cool about the, the map that, that I think is neat is that there's also regional reporting. Uh, so you can actually toggle a switch and it will pop up dots on the map that, that show you the places that we've written things. Um, and, and you can change the time frame you know, to the last 30 days, the last 60 days. And it'll show you whether it was an analytical piece, whether it was more of an item of interest or an incident report. Uh, it will show all those things by color and type on the map. And then the dots get bigger, uh, you know, the more that we write on something. So something where we, we've had a lot of reporting in the last couple months, say, uh, you know, Turkey or, or the Philippines, uh, Mexico, those things are going to have some, some fairly big dots. And it allows you to immediately notice where the reporting's at and what kind of reports they are. And I must admit, through having had the chance to actually go in and, and go through uh, ThreatLens and have a play around with it, the functionality is, is excellent. I really enjoy going there just as a layperson, really. But if I was a chief security officer or a security professional, what could I really get from ThreatLens using this new capability that we have? Well, one of the things that we're trying to do is, is as we talked about a little bit, just giving them some filtering. Uh, because one of the things that, you know, when we talk to uh, chief security officers and, uh, you know, other people in the industry, they're always complaining about being waterboarded by information. So one of the things that we're trying to focus on is turning that information flow into really an intelligence flow, giving them the stuff they need, but also placing it into context, which I think is, is very important. Uh, there are a lot of companies out there that do alerting. There's an element of that in threat lens, but what we're really trying to go for here is to be a, an explainer and to provide kind of that background and context and what does this event mean to me in, in my role and, and to my company and the people and facilities I'm trying to protect. And the other thing that's very impressive has been the responsiveness. It's very, very fast. The site moves quickly, information is updated quickly. And actually, the way in which Threat Lens will get on and analyze a breaking event is very impressive. Typically, one of the things that Stratford.com does is actually to zoom back and look at the whole world and put events in context. Do you think that there's a linkage between sort of the more higher-level geopolitical analysis we do and then the very responsive close-up look at, at tactical developments on the ground, so to speak? Oh, absolutely. And, and quite frankly, Ben, there are a lot of people that, that do terrorism and security analysis out there. But one of the things that, that I believe our team at Stratfor has an advantage is that we're part of Stratfor. And we're able to use uh, you know, Stratfor's geopolitical modeling, the net assessments, the forecasts, the country monographs, those sorts of tools as uh, I, I like to refer to them as kind of the puzzle frames. Uh, if you will, if you're putting together a piece of puzzle, those give us the puzzle. And then we're able to kind of fill in the tactical details farther on down using those analytical frameworks. So it helps us place things into a context in the way that they're understandable. And then, of course, we have kind of some sub forecasts, you know, at threat lens. And we also have some sub net assessments. 
So, uh, you know, you'll have a, kind of a net assessment of a region or the world, and we have, uh, you know, our, our, our net assessment of the jihadist movement or a net assessment of the grassroots uh, terrorism. Uh, and so those things actually even give us smaller boxes, and all those things help us to quickly place things into context. A lot of journalists have this tendency to kind of write a piece, and it's a one-off, and it kind of stands alone, whereas the, the analysis that, w- that we do here at Stratfor, and specifically in ThreatLens, ties uh, into these analytical narratives and into these net assessments. And so it, it, it ties up into the really strategic stuff, but also down into the tactical. And, and that's what really sets us apart. It, it allows us to place those things in context, but then it also allows us to chart the dynamics and then forecast things going forward. I think for me, is what, that's what makes it such an exciting platform. It does all of that, and it really gives the opportunity for you to, to bring your and your team's you know, incredible experience to bear in, a, in, in such a unique and, and powerful way. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I also like with, with ThreatLens is, quite frankly, with, with Stratfor.com, we have so many subscribers, and, and basically anyone with an email address and a credit card can sign up. We just don't really know who everyone is. And so there's a lot of times we have to be quite constrained in our analysis of terrorism and crime because we don't want to make smarter criminals. Uh, You know, we're always very conscious of that and we're always kind of, you know, taking things out of things we write uh, just so that we don't make smarter criminals. One of the nice things about ThreatLens is that this is a smaller community. They're vetted people. So we can be a little bit more open and and talk about some things that we, you know, are very reluctant to do so with Stratfor.com. Scott, that is a really good point because clearly one of the focuses we have at Stratfor.com is that bigger geopolitical overview. And as you say, with ThreatLens, it's a community and is a community of security professionals who not only use this information in good effect, but can also share and contribute. What's your take on the whole community aspect of ThreatLens? Yeah, that that is one of the things that that, uh, we actually, when I was at the ASIS conference a couple weeks ago, one of the things that the, the, the security officers that I talked to really loved and even when we've done demos to a, a number of large corporations, they really like this idea of, of having the forums that we have. Uh, and, and this is not only allowing them to communicate with us. Uh, we have some analyst-led forums, but we're also going to have some more open forums where the clients can talk amongst themselves with their peers and, and with vetted and trusted peers, knowing that it's you know not just the public at large. And so that's going to uh, also just be a, a wonderful opportunity for them to share, to learn, and to uh, hopefully better protect their people and their facilities. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with me about this today. Certainly, I'm excited. and I know that your team has really enjoyed bringing this, this fantastic new product into the marketplace. Scott, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. Take care. That's all we have time for today. But if you're interested in learning more on these topics, visit us at stratfor.com. We'll include links to some related reading in the show notes. If you have a question or a comment, please leave us a message and we'll try to include it in a future episode of the Stratfor Talks podcast. You can reach Stratfor Talks at 1-512-744-4300 extension 3917. Or you can email us at podcast at stratfor.com. Be sure to visit us online for more geopolitical intelligence and insight into global affairs or follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, at Stratfor. Thanks again for listening.